This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio. You are building out a new computing platform. You're building out a new social world. And I don't actually know if people realize what a big deal this is. I could not agree more. This is like the beginning of computing again. You know, this is going back to the 1960s, the 1970s, when the computers that we know now, even the ones we have in our pockets really come back to the same fundamentals that were designed way back in the middle of the last century. And with VR and AR, suddenly it is a different paradigm. He's sitting in one of the most influential seats at Facebook, building out a new virtual social world. Andrew Bosworth, better known as Boz, was among the first 15 engineers at Facebook. He still remembers the exact day he started in 2006. Over the years, he helped build Newsfeed. He oversaw Facebook's advertising efforts during the 2016 election. And he's also become known for his controversial and unfiltered opinions, which he sent out in company-wide attention-grabbing memos. Now Facebook is pursuing an ambitious vision of virtual reality and augmented reality and it's Boz who's in charge. There is a lot at stake as Facebook builds out what has potential to be a whole new dimension. What will AR and VR look like down the line? And how do you make virtual interaction feel as natural as in-person interaction? What will this mean for the future of remote work? How close is too close in the virtual world? And when it comes to creating your virtual self, who owns your identity? These are all ethical questions, and they're the types of questions Facebook is looking at as they invest pretty heavily in building out AR and VR. And as the company creates another social layer, I think it's important to ask Boz, how confident is he that Facebook won't recreate the problems they've faced as a platform over the last decade? But before we get to Boz, I want to tell you about something new from Dot 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 that I am really excited about. It's our new email newsletter, The Gray Area. 
Each month, the gray area confronts the complex issues facing technology and humanity, issues that aren't necessarily black and white. In October, we're exploring the controversial topic of technology and neutrality, including an unfiltered perspective from a well-known Silicon Valley founder who says tech should not try to be neutral, and those building platforms now should start building with that in mind. It's actually a fascinating take, and I hope you guys don't miss out. You can sign up at dot.media.com slash newsletter. And now it's time for Boz. I'm Lori Siegel, and this is First Contact. Boz, you are called Boz. That's the nickname. That's the correct <laughs> way I should describe you. That's right. You, you're right. also welcome to call me Andrew. I do respond to both names. But okay. From time immemorial, people have preferred to call me Boz. Great. Currently a VP at Facebook Reality Labs, but you've been at Facebook since 2006? That's right. January 9th, 2006. I love that you, by the way, that you know the, the date that you That's started. A big deal. That's a big deal. It was also two days after my birthday. I start, uh, was, uh, my birthday is January 7th. Wow. Do you remember your first day? Vividly. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a bunch of really great Facebook engineers joined at the same time that I did. Um, you know, Mark Slee, Dave Fetterman. It was a fun time for us and uh, quite a crazy change. I, you know, I came from Microsoft. Uh, and so going to this little startup where like there was just no one even to greet you, just kind of wandered in and found yourself a desk. It was, uh, it was pretty different. Hmm. What was your first conversation like with Mark that day? What was the first thing he had you do? We had to go fix bugs, uh, which is huh. a tradition that continues to this day. It was like, yeah. hey, here's your desk. Here's a computer. Go fix some bugs. Right. I mean, for folks who are listening, the context is you're one of the first 15 engineers at the company and you help build newsfeed, messenger groups. So you have just been a part of every major milestone of the company to, to this day. Yeah, I've had a, a good fortune of working across a huge breadth of the company. Of course, there's always so much more, a lot of things that I've, I've never gotten to, to work on that, that are great. Um, but I've, yeah, I've had, a, I've had a really fun set of projects to work on connecting people. Uh, and, yeah. and creating these communication tools that people use every day. It's really satisfying. And what an extraordinary time to be sitting in your seat. And also one of the things I, I love about you, having been in the industry for a while and having followed the company closely, is you're kind of one of the, the executives that says how he feels, um, which, <laughs> which us as journalists, but just like as people, we, we really uh, appreciate. But it, it is really fascinating because you've said some things throughout the years um, that always get a lot of attention, but you are a person at the company, at a big corporate company, who's kind of known for saying how you feel. Yeah, I think it's saying saying how I feel, but also trying to bring voice to conversations that are important yeah. is, is a bigger part of it. I think it's tempting for any company that gets big uh, to get comfortable or to get into a habit of not asking the hard questions. And I've always wanted to be someone, it doesn't matter if I'm just a regular employee or if I'm an executive, I want to be somebody who invites the hard questions, who's bring those to the surface to make sure that we're always doing that work. And it's never been more important than it is now. Yeah. Um, I want to get to what you guys are announcing and, and um, virtual reality and augmented reality, which I just think is actually fascinating. You know, I think a lot of times in technology, everybody has one conversation and we totally don't look at the other way. And I think that you're sitting in probably one of the most influential seats at, at Facebook, given everything that's happening. You're almost building out, uh, you are building out a new computing platform. You're building out a new social world. And I don't actually know if people realize what a big deal this is. It, you know, I, I know people have been talking about VR for a long time. People have been talking about augmented reality. I know that, that Mark has 
in his non-New Year's resolutions. He always <laughs> posts on Facebook, and he did this year a non-New Year's resolution where he posted something about augmented reality. Fast forward, pandemic, remote work. It, it seems to me that you have one of the most important roles at the company right now. It's hard to gauge its importance. You know, how would you weigh the importance of new computing platforms versus uh, bringing greater integrity and privacy and security to existing platforms? I think they're all important. Uh, I can certainly tell you it's one of the most fun jobs at Facebook right now. And I really want to double down. You said you don't think people know how important this is. And I could not agree more. This is like the beginning of computing again. You know, this is going back to the 1960s, the 1970s when the computers that we know now, even the ones we have in our pockets, really come back to the same fundamentals that were designed way back in the middle of the last century. And with VR and AR, suddenly it is a different paradigm. It's not just flat 2D windows that you directly manipulate somehow, whether with a mouse or your finger. It's, it's like in the world. There's a bunch of elements that the computer can't control that it has to adapt to. Not only was that impossible previously from a standpoint of the displays, which still don't exist yet, but we think they can, mm -hmm. uh, the sensors, all that. It's also the AI, the, the intelligence you need to be able to be useful in that kind of a scenario. So it does feel like we're at the beginning of a really big arc in progress for technology, whereas the mobile phone was maybe the end of the last arc of progress. And, and that's exciting. But give me this sell, because like I've been in this for a while, right? And how many times have we heard people say like VR, the next big bet is VR and, <laughs> and AR. And like you, you and me both know that people have been saying this for a really long time. I think my instinct is saying, no, 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 something about this actually feels kind of different. And maybe it's because of all the external things happening with remote work and with our reliance on screens and our craving humanity in a different way. But something does feel different. So like, Baza, give me the sell. Like VR hasn't really hit 100%. Maybe you can argue with me on this. Um, no. But, but why now do you think this is the moment for virtual reality, augmented reality? Well, in the case of virtual reality, you have the mobile phone to thank. Mobile phones created an incentive for technology to miniaturize, improve performance per watt, improve things like cameras and make them smaller and cheaper and higher fidelity, and improve uh, things like displays, very, very small, tightly packed displays. Without all that, the physics of virtual reality, which, yeah, have been around since the 80s, were just unworkable. You know, some of the early uh, VR headsets were so heavy they had to be suspended from the ceiling by steel cables. They used to call that the Sword of Damocles. Because uh, if it fell off, it would kill you while you were using VR. You know, today we've got Quest 2 weighing in 15% lighter than a generation that was launched just a year and a half earlier, four times more powerful, 50% more pixels, and it's $100 cheaper. That is, you know, the benefit that we have of working on a supply chain that was really developed for mobile phones, but works beautifully for VR as well. Not to mention tremendous wealth now of 3D content, thanks to years of, of heavily investment in the industry around uh, 3D gaming in particular. Uh, so I, I do think it does feel differently. It reminds me, if you, if you went back and you had like a Palm Pilot or you had a handspring, those were awesome devices. And you could glimpse in those devices what the iPhone would become, but they weren't the iPhone. I think the previous generation of VR was kind of like those Palm Pilot handspring type devices where like, yeah, I get it. Like if you could do this, it would be cool, but you can't do it yet. 
we can do it now. It's exciting. Like it's here. If you've used it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. Now you can use your hands. It can be very natural. Augmented reality, we can see, but we're like, it's, we're still trying to solve some of the fundamental physics problems. You know, like how do you literally like make certain wavelengths of light? How do you bend those wavelengths of light in the right way? Um, so we're, we're at a little bit more of a fundamental stage with AR, but the same technology should allow us to cross the bridge. And, and also huge advances in wireless technology are critical as well. Do you think when it comes to the future, and I want to get into specifically some of the, the platforms that you guys are launching and, and what you guys just announced, but I mean, do you think that the future of Facebook is, um, you know, I look at I look at the history of Facebook and I look at Instagram and WhatsApp and all of these different um, products that are owned by Facebook um, to, to some degree and that have been integrated with Facebook. Do you think that when we look at Facebook in 10 years, and maybe this is just to kind of talk about the stakes of this and, and to talk about how important, um, you know, building out another world is and what will come along with that. Do you think that these worlds that you guys are building, the ones that we're about to talk about, will be the kind of the next dimension that in the next layer of Facebook that in maybe 10 years, we might not even be on the Facebook we know will be in these different worlds that you're building today? I love that you use the word layers there because that is how I think of it. You know, I don't it just, we still make phone calls today and that's a layer of communication that we as a society laid a hundred years ago, the foundations for, and then we added text messaging and we're, we're increasing the speed and the fidelity and the richness with which we can exchange information when we're at a distance. Look, nothing is as good as being in the same room as somebody you love. I, I, you know, that's, that's, that's a high standard to meet. But can it be better than VC today? Absolutely. <laughs> like we can do better than this. Um, and I think all the time about uh, bowling, Lori. Have you ever been bowling? Totally. I was on a bowling league when I was younger. Just I love that. <laughs> what a what a weird thing for us as a species to do. Can you imagine if we saw like an ant go bowling or like right. a dog bowling? Uh-huh. Like, it would be the greatest sensation of all times. What we we why do we go bowling? We go. You you want to have something? Just any excuse for us to have a shared experience to create memories to have an excuse to go to a place and be together. And I think when you're in virtual reality, look, I've done a lot of, uh, you know, uh, happy hours uh, with friends over portal and they've been great, but at some point they kind of drop off the calendar because you don't have a reason to do it. There's not like a thing that anchors it um, with virtual reality, with augmented reality, you potentially do have those things. Yeah. Do I think, so do I think that they replace Facebook as we know it today? No, there's still plenty of opportunity there where I want to either, uh, asynchronously communicate through sharing and, and broadcasting or multicasting, or I want to communicate one-on-one or do really richly. And by the way, video calling for two people is pretty great. You can see my full facial expression. It's really rich. You have a good sense of my emotion. So there's a lot, all that value still exists. There's going to be new forms of value, um, which, yeah, I think a year ago would have been maybe a tougher sell, but now that people are in lockdown, they've experienced what it's like to be in quarantine, you get it. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. yeah. And that's what, for some people, for immigrants, that's what life is like every day. They yeah. don't know anybody. Their loved ones are far away and they, that's, there's nothing they can do about it. So I really believe in this direction uh, for us as a society. And I think it's also important, as we're seeing now, for people who want to collaborate at work. Yeah. You know, I remember I started covering tech in 2009, right out of the recession to 2008. And there was all this innovation that happened because you saw that there's so much broken. And and I think this experience, even being on Zoom and, and the fact that, you know, I don't think we'll go back to work in the same way. So I hope we all go back to work in some capacity, but some of this will remain, right? These ideas of remote work. So there is a tremendous opportunity, you know, for, for these platforms. And I can see that Facebook 
you know, in, in many ways wants to own that, right? And, and of course, I think that comes with so many interesting questions uh, on the human side about uh, what, what comes along with, with that, you know? But this experience right now we have is pretty broken, right? Um, and I think people are sick of the Zoom apocalypse and, and will people, <laughs> you know, want to Zoom when we're kind of going back to work and what will be that in-between human connection? It seems like that's the thing that, that you're thinking about. Well, I also, I also want to clear, like, I don't know that I want to own it. I just want to make sure there's space for it. I mean, honestly, yes. uh, if you look at, there's lots of examples of, of technology that we use that we don't primarily use to communicate or connect with people. And this also goes back 70, 80 years. It's a very deep divide in the history of computation where some people felt, hey, this was about a tool being useful for me as an individual, and it would make me more powerful. And there's people who said, no, no, this is a tool to connect with other people. That's why it's so incredible that in 1968, Doug Engelbart, who debuted the computer mouse, also debuted video conferencing and shared document editing. You know, it was important to the early pioneers of the current generation of computing that this be not just about, oh, I can do spreadsheets more effectively, but also enabling the internet. Ethernet came out of Xerox Park, like incredible leaps forward in our ability to connect across distances. And for us at Facebook, that is what we care the most about. And I do legitimately worry that if we're not in there at the pioneering stage of these new technologies, that other technology providers will just cut that use case out. And it'll still be great devices. They'll be super useful to you, but they won't help you connect with other people. And so I don't need to own the whole thing. I'm happy to, to play in a lot of different systems. I need to make sure there's space for this really valuable work to happen. And we're the ones who care the most about it. And I want to get into that, by the way, because I do think this idea of connection has come along with complicated questions. And so I want to talk about how you guys are thinking about that as you build out a new computer interface, as you build out these layers. But I don't want to speak around. I want to talk specifics. Um, you guys launched quite a bit. You made a, quite a few announcements um, in the last couple of weeks with Facebook Connect. So talk to me. I mean, let's start with Horizon. I thought Horizon was super yeah. interesting. What exactly is it? What's the experience like? And it's kind of weird to talk about it over a podcast, but like, <laughs> I know. if you can just like close your eyes and pretend like we're there and like describe to people what you see when you're with, with Horizon. Yeah. I mean, Horizon is a virtual world. It's got things to do. There's rooms, there's spaces that uh, hopefully a large community of creators can build out more and more spaces. And those could be performance spaces, or if you wanted to be uh, do an artist or, or, or do poetry or do a performance, those could be uh, little game spaces, like a, we played a little laser tag game. That could be uh, a puzzle, you know, a little puzzle space. Escape rooms are one of the popular early ones that some of our internal devs have done. Again, to my point about bowling earlier, it's a place where you and I could go and just have a shared experience. And it's social. You've got a, an avatar. I've got an avatar. And they're not high fidelity, but you do get that sense. And we, we're all about it at Facebook Reality Labs is that sense of presence. You have that sense that I am with somebody, that sense of being with somebody and having an experience that the two of you share together. Uh, and Horizon is, it's just in open beta right now. And uh, it's pretty cool. It's early yet. We're still kind of working out some of the scaling issues and getting the avatars just right and getting the quality just right. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, you can think of it as, a virtual space for people to go and be together. More from Boz after the break. And make sure you sign up for our newsletter at dot.media.com backslash newsletter. We'll be launching in October. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen 
a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. you kind of touch on like this idea of social VR, right? Um, and, and being able to be around other people and be present with other people and do things together. I always think that's fascinating and important, especially now. But I also, when I look at these tech platforms being built, right? And you see the the wonderful videos and, and Boz, you guys put these together. Like, so you know them better than, than anyone, like where it's all the amazing things you can do together. And all of a sudden you're in the virtual world and you're playing games and you're building things. It's not like you guys are putting warning and also X, Y, Z, right? And you got to be really careful as you're building out a, a new dimension of some sort, a new layer, that you don't recreate many of the problems that you have on Facebook, 
OG platform? Because obviously you guys have been uh, dealing with many complicated issues over the last decade even, you know, especially over the last five years. So what are you thinking about as you build out a new layer? Um, you know, what are the ethical issues you're thinking about? What are kind of some of the human problems you're thinking about? Yeah, they run a huge range. I mean, here we, we benefit so much actually from being a part of Facebook because we do stand on the shoulders of all the lessons learned uh, over the last 10 or 15 years uh, working through the platforms that we've built there. And we benefit from all the technology that's been deployed around that. We also have a few additional advantages. For example, in Horizon, which you just talked about, if there is some kind of an abuse happening, you have the ability, which is unique to virtual reality, to literally freeze the world, find the offending individual and like disappear them. <laughs> that person just doesn't exist for you anymore. Hmm. And you get to go about your day. And so you have a lot of power in virtual reality to control your own experience, which makes sense because, you know, you it's all just virtual. Uh, and so I think we've got two advantages on virtual reality, which are really valuable. One of which is, yeah, the history and technology that Facebook brings to the table. And the second one is the nature of the medium is a little bit more empowering. And then, you know, the other thing we talked about at Connect last week is, for example, Project Aria. Project Aria is a research vehicle that we're rolling out 100 kind of hand-built pairs of glasses that have sensor packages on them. They have uh, outward-facing sensors, they have inward-facing sensors, they have GPS, and, you know, somewhere on the order of 100 Facebook employees and contractors fully trained, are going to be wearing them around in the Bay Area and Seattle. Uh, and this is in, inviting, very intentionally inviting a conversation about, hey, what is the nature of what we should expect or allow as a society when it comes to these types of devices? To be clear about Project Aria, we're being very careful with it. All data is quarantined for three days. It gives us time to scrub any faces out. We blur faces. We blur license plates. We don't use the data at all with those things intact. Um, the people are wearing shirts. They're all identifiable. But set aside the specifics, the more general question is like, hey, augmented reality could be incredibly valuable. Uh, in the, a really specific use case, you know, we're, we're partnering with Carnegie Mellon University to say, hey, could these help uh, people who are vision impaired navigate physical spaces, right? Uh, it's, it's a device that could help them be able to actually not see, but navigate physical spaces more effectively than they could otherwise. That's pretty good. But... It's also got a bunch of cameras on it that are going to like see other humans doing things in the world. Yeah. Um, what is the impact, not just on the person wearing it, which is the major focus when it comes to like mobile phones. What is the impact to the people who aren't wearing it? What is the impact to underserved or marginalized communities who come into contact with this technology? And so there's really tremendous opportunity for good. And there's, you know, obviously a huge amount of risk. Well, we're now trying to start that public conversation today, uh, last week, I suppose, so that we, because we, we're years away from having a consumer product out. And so let's have it. Let's figure it mm -hmm. out as a society. What do we think is a good trade-off? What is an acceptable level of protection? We're not going to get rid of all the harms, but we can hopefully find a balance that we find equitable as a society. Um, and so that's a really big shift. For, I mean, for you covering Facebook for 10, 15 years, you know, like that's a shift. We're trying to get this stuff out way in advance of when the product arrives so that there's no surprises. Although we all know you put a product out there and just people misuse it, right? People use it in all sorts yeah. of ways that will shock you. How could you have seen that Russia was going to do what it did for the election, right? So it's almost also how do you anticipate the unintended consequences? Yeah. So by definition, I suppose you can't in, uh, yeah. find all the unintended consequences, but we can certainly do a lot of them. You yeah. know, we've really, that's, that's really the work that we've been doing. Certainly the last five years uh, really intensified the last uh, three 
where it's like, hey, okay, what are all the forms of harm that you're going to try to get from nation state actors? You're right. We didn't, we weren't looking at nation states before we are now. Yeah. Uh, it, there is a list of them. Will we catch all of them? No, but I don't think consumers really hold people to that standard. They just want you to like control the obvious negative externalities. And though, you know, you, people, you can make a mistake. You just don't want to make it twice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so for me, at least, I think we are trying to take all those lessons learned. We have what we call the responsible innovation principles, which are informed by the entire history of abuse that we've observed uh, on other platforms and saying, okay, let's run everything we build through every single one of those types of abuse and understand what the risks are, what the opportunities are, and how to, how to do our best to mitigate. I mean, I think it's got to be so fascinating to to be building this right now. Can you take us um, take us to the inside? Men, are you even? You're, I guess you're not in Menlo Park right now. I mean, like you <laughs> no. guys are. I guess take us to the, the the virtual rooms that you guys are discussing some of these issues, right? Like, I remember um, covering a virtual reality, I, a woman who had been harassed in the virtual world, right? And she talked about not having the physical control to like push someone away, but you hear people's voices. I mean, that was insane to me, Boz, right? Like, and she talked about, you know, this idea that she couldn't actually physically move someone away and they could continue to harass her. And and this was through Oculus and, right? But it was, a, the game developers hadn't really understood that harassment could actually happen like this in this world. So like, take me to the behind the scenes conversations that you guys are having um, about these. Like, are there anything specific that you guys are talking about? I just feel like these jam sessions, because you you talk about how you are trying to think through some of these scenarios before, they've got to be pretty interesting. Um, take us to them. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, to use the Horizon example, just because it's convenient, yeah. that's a scenario that we obviously did think through. Uh, and in fact, one of the debates we have inside is, what is the distance that you can allow avatars to get close to each other? Uh, because right. for some people, close talkers in virtual reality give them sense a sense of an unease. But for other people, they want to be able to do things like whisper quietly and have intimate conversations. Right. And so it's that's an example of a conversation we're having right now inside the company <laughs> of like, hey, like how much social distance is required in virtual reality for like maximum right. comfort? When we get those situations, we err on the side of comfort. You know, obviously you have to start by building, uh, if you don't have a team that's diverse, inclusive, and equitable, then you're not going to have even the eyes on the problems. You know, uh, one of the things that I think we, we were lucky for early on is we had uh, quite a few women in the Oculus organization who were testing the headsets out. It wasn't working for hair. It wasn't working for makeup. So now we've got the accessory program for Quest 2, which should allow for a more diverse variety of hairstyles. Mine is admittedly relatively easy to operate, for those who don't know I am bald, uh, but but that's obviously not a thing that you want to optimize your headset around. Um, yeah. So there's for you have to start with a team. You have to create space for those conversations. Uh, frankly, a lot of it is also working with external parties with experts. You know, we announced two RFPs last week for over a million dollars uh, on uh, understanding the impact of technology like AR on underserved communities and underrepresented communities, and that's work that. Why would you expect us at Facebook to be able to do that work? Like, you know, we're not almost by definition an underserved community. We have to be doing outreach in those spaces. You have to be paying attention and inviting the criticism and the hard conversation that comes. So it's three things, right? One is like looking at historic harms that you observed. Those are kind of the best case. We know how to manage those pretty well. And so you can talk through those. The second one is having a team that's really agile and able to hear and understand criticism as it's coming in and internalize it. 
And then you also have to have the reactive, okay, we didn't see this one coming and no one did yeah. and something bad happened. How do we adapt quickly? You have to have all three of those muscles uh, and, and we do it at different times. You know, I was doing a, um, God, it was some kind of demo. Uh, it wasn't the Horizon demo, it was another demo, I think that, you know, was about kind of a virtual work type space and they created an avatar for me. And I, I mean, I swear to God, Buzz, like, I, you know, it, it was... First of all, I, everyone's pantless, right? Like we should just say that, right? <laughs> well, they're legless too. I'm yeah, that, that, they're legless. legless. Okay, I mean, it's just we're weird. not I, that. <laughs> I'm just saying, like it's a little. Everyone's legless, and and I think like they made my body look very strange. And as a woman, I was like, this is just so weird. And it was all these dudes around me, like talking to me about work, and it was a very strange experience. Where let me just say this, like the person who sees the who can see the future and see the point was like, oh, this is we're on to something real but then I was saying to myself as I was sitting there legless sorry not pantless legless like with a my arms were like seven feet long it felt like and I was surrounded <laughs> by like tech kind of tech bros who were speaking at me about you know the future of work and I could barely get things to move I was like this feels a little weird you know so I you yeah. gotta I, this is why I ask you about these things because I, I mean I I do think it's probably the, the future and I, you've got to be kind of thinking about the the little things if this is like the world that we're building out that we will eventually in some capacity be living in yeah so you, it sounds like you land yourself in the uncanny valley and you know it's unquestionable that you really need representations on digital spaces to either be cartoonishly inaccurate where no one expects accuracy or like really accurate to the point that right. like you really are proud of it you know uh, listen hey you know uh, you may have combed your hair today. I oiled my beard. Like we, we did things to look presentable. And this is just a video conference. I'm not even sure if anyone, this is a podcast. Like I, I made myself look pretty in the face for a podcast or this is as pretty as I get for my, my apologies to the audience. But like, so, so of course people care about how they present themselves in all spaces, digital spaces included. You can do either depressurize, which is how we've taken, the approach we've taken with Horizon and venues so far. It's very consistent. You know, it's, it's in line with the Facebook avatars that they've launched. It's all built by this Facebook Reality Labs team. Uh, and then we do have a vision to get from uh, to what we call codec avatars, which are incredibly rich, realistic uh, reproductions of faces. Bodies are pretty much always going to be estimated. Uh, other than faces and hands, humans don't really key in on specific details that much about one another. Uh, faces and hands is a tremendously rich communication service. We're all tuned in our brains to identify small movements in those things. The rest of it we can kind of estimate. Legs are particularly hard. I'm sitting down. Do I look short to you? I don't know. Like, how do we want to play that? Virtual spaces do have some challenges relative to the extra degrees of freedom <laughs> cause some challenges as well. Um, but, but I do think like you have to take that glimmer and realize, honestly, it's not that far. I think we're actually, honestly, Pat, we're seeing tremendous vertical adoption of virtual reality. It's early yet, but that's how these things always start. And what I like about it is the place that we are is not a place free of problems. I don't like to be in a place free of problems. It's a place full of problems that I believe we can solve and people will care when we do. That's where I like to be. Like, what do you What the, do you mean by that? That's oh, man. What do you mean? Consider Newsfeed. When I, when I first joined Facebook, uh, you know, I worked with Chris Cox and Ruchi Sangvi on Newsfeed. And we just knew it was going to be a hit because... The way that people used Facebook before that was insane. They would click around, yeah. profile the profile, the profile, the profile to see what had changed. Right. And we we're like, oh, we can do better than this. Uh, Messenger. People were already doing so many kind of tricks and hacks to try to get chat to work sure. on mobile phones to get around SMS fees, which were monstrous. Now, looking back, think about SMS fees. 
what a monstrous yeah. thing that was. How amazing is it that the internet has freed us from, from like, you know, 10 cents a message nonsense. Yeah. Like we're doing amazing. It's like, I like it when you're at the beginning of something and you're like, oh, this is not only do, can I glimpse it, it's pretty good, but I see a hundred things that can make it even better. Right. That's where I think VR is. VR has like gotten good. And I, I, I just see like a hundred things ahead that can make it even better. Totally. I mean, but, but go back to Newsfeed, right? I remember when you guys launched Newsfeed. It, Newsfeed <laughs> was the one that everybody was like, Facebook is over, right? Was that was that the one that everyone was like, or, or everyone was very upset about it at first? Uh, there I think was... you're describing every change you've ever made <laughs> Okay. Um, in, in history. Uh, no, I think Newsfeed, I feel like Newsfeed was, I don't wanna, were, were there was the protests? No. Was, was that was the one the, with the protests? Newsfeed was the first thing that we had done that people yeah. were really... Uh, so I don't want to overfit the curve. Uh, I think sometimes when people really are upset, they really are upset. And sometimes when they're upset, it's because there's been a change and there's an adjustment period to that. And, and learning to distinguish those two is part of the art, I suppose, of being in these jobs. Let me give you my analogy for Newsfeed. We, we launched Newsfeed. You, you ever had that thing where you're at a party and you know everyone's talking, music's up, everyone's loud. And then for whatever reason, like the music gets cut, everyone gets quiet. And the last thing that you said is like it just hangs in the air and everyone can hear it. That's what newsfeed was like. Like we yeah. did that to everyone all at once because right. everyone had been out there posting on walls and doing things. And yeah, technically those things were discoverable. They didn't know. Right. They didn't think it would be discovered. And then we like organized it differently. So we basically record scratched the entire community. So from that takeaway, we didn't think, oh, we did it perfectly. Ignore them. No, we were like, oh man, we really screwed the roll up out. We needed to tell them what we were doing, why we were doing it, right. roll it out steadily. And like, we didn't do that back then. Uh, and so we learn from that. So each time we really learn every time things happen, oh, okay, like we screwed that up. Let's like not make that mistake again. Um, so Newsfeed, yeah, Newsfeed had like a, certainly a very strong visceral reaction. However, from a product standpoint, it solved the problem we were solving for almost immediately. Like we saw usage double kind of overnight and never go back down uh, because people were having more success finding the content they were looking for. They weren't having to click around. Like, yeah. do you remember the entire center of homepage used to just be like pokes, like number of pokes? It was yeah. Like, that was like the but, centerpiece. But wait, poking was so creepy. Like, why did you, I just feel like it's like. I, that, listen, that's a, that's a, that's a question day, for like, else. That's why you guys, you guys probably had too many, too many men working at Facebook. I've never worked at, I've never worked on poke. That's one I, I can't take you know? questions on that. But, but let me, but let me just say, so yes, newsfeed was so um, disruptive to everything. And, and I'm not one to say like, you know, whoa, like they should have never had news. Newsfeed changed everything, right? It truly it changed did. the web. It changed the web. And everyone at first was kind of like, oh, you know, like we, we talk about, you talk about kind of the party where you did this all at once. I really think that to some degree, the stuff you're working on, and maybe maybe I could be completely wrong, but could could have, depending on timing and what kind of comes out and, and this moment we're in, like, you know, could have similar impact, right? But but we can't deny the the last years, right? We can't deny the fact that um, newsfeed also, um, you know, let's not oversimplify this and be like tech is good and bad, right? Like that newsfeed also, you know, created misinformation and people are trying to figure out what truth is and there are filter bubbles and, you know, and people have talked about the ad model at Facebook being, you know, being one of the most disruptive and terrible things ever. So, so I mean, it created this host of problems as well. That doesn't mean it should have gone away or it should have never been done, but it did create this host of problems. So as you sit there and, and what what I go back to my first question is, is one of the most important seats at Facebook, which I don't think people maybe realize. And I, I'm just calling it one of the most important seats because I think it's a very important seat. Like, you know, 
you gotta, I'm, I'm assuming you gotta be thinking about it like this, right? Like you gotta be thinking about it with the same stakes as you guys did maybe with newsfeed. Am I, is that incorrect to say, or am I just being dramatic? I know you, I think no, sometimes, not, I think sometimes you, well, you think journalists I, are dramatic, but, but I, I, I certainly feel passionate about that. I love the passion and I think it's important. Let's, I, I don't think journalists are dramatic. I think journalists <laughs> are doing a great job. I think we've got, we live in tremendously interesting times, certainly much more interesting than several decades that preceded it. Uh, and it, it invites, it, it deserves the degree of public debate that we're having on the issue. So, so, you know, far from it. I don't agree with a lot of what you just said. And, you know, yeah. Early on, I think I said Newsfeed was built by th- the core team was three people, Rushi Sangvi, including uh, mm-hmm. there w- was more women at the beginning of Facebook than people seem to recognize. Maybe you've seen a, a fictional yeah. film about it. Uh, don't believe that. That's fiction. Um, mm-hmm. setting, so, so I don't agree with a bunch of things that you just said. However, <laughs> transitioning to the question of like, what is the thing that we're doing? I, the work that I'm doing right now feels important. Yeah, in the capital I sense of the word, I think it's important for society. I think it's got tremendous opportunity for impact. Of course, it's very hard to separate positive impacts from negative impacts. And, and thinking those through really rigorously is something that we, we've we said publicly we weren't doing in the early parts of Facebook. Yeah. And we that clearly was a mistake. It's one that we're, you know, we're trying to rectify now with massive investment. Um, that's one that I get the benefit of. It's a mistake I don't plan to make again. It's a mistake that uh, we actually don't have to, you know... I get to benefit from all of Facebook's learning on it and their technological investment on it comes to bear. I do think it's very different though. You're going to find very different problems. You know, yeah. uh, newsfeed dealt primarily in information and it raises important questions about free speech and democracy and who's allowed to say things that aren't true uh, and who's allowed to say, uh, you know, get distribution, who's allowed to be listened to. Sure. Those are hard questions. The, the problems that we'll deal with in, in virtual reality and augmented reality are different. I don't think it's going to be at all like Newsfeed because, unfortunately, even as affordable as we've made Quest 2 at $300, $300 is a f- pretty far away from $0. Yeah. Um, and it's going to take a long time for us to continue to get this technology deployed. I'm worried about uneven access. I'm worried about, yeah. hey, can only rich people get access to this technology, which is potentially very empowering? Uh, what's the problem that comes with that? That's novel. That's not something that you have to deal with with Facebook. Because Facebook has an absolutely wonderful consumer-aligned business model yeah. that allows us to deliver a tremendous amount of services that used to cost $0.10 cents a message for free. Uh, and we don't think about that maybe because we have means. And we're not thinking about all the people who are benefiting tremendously. So those are the types of things that do worry me a lot. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, obviously we're, we're not – we're in a diff- different business than Apple. You know, we're not charging – on these headsets, the amount that, that, you know, someone trying to make margin uh, on a business would charge for them. So we are taking a different approach as a consequence of that. Um, so I think it's very important technology. I think it's important to empowering uh, a workforce that's global, that doesn't have uh, geographic or economic mobility. Uh, if you follow Raj Chetty's work first at Stanford and now at Harvard. So I think it's important work and I do take it very seriously. Uh, and I'm grateful mm-hmm. for the resources I have at Facebook that help me do it better. I think it's so interesting what you say when you talk about the digital divide. I think that's probably one of the most uh, important things that's probably really on display right now. I I mean, it's always been an issue, but it couldn't be more on display right now, you know, during the pandemic where people, children are having to do remote work. You know, there's that image of you know, kids trying to get Wi-Fi from a, a Taco Bell parking lot, you At know, the Taco Bell. you know, so I, I wonder, I, I mean, I do think, you know, you talk about even the future of work and, and I, I've looked at the demo you guys did. It's, it's really interesting, you know, where you put on the headset and you're, uh, you're, and there's presence and there's the ability to be around people. Um, 
but but you're absolutely right that that's for some people um you know in an increasingly divided world and 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 what we're seeing so what do you what do you think is is the solution uh, as you kind of wade into this uh so a couple things from a technological standpoint, uh, you know, we are trying to do, a, a, actually, this is a huge area of investment for Facebook, as you know, you know, internet.org was on the premise of like, hey, can we get internet to more people uh, at a more affordable price? Um, and it's it's wild to me that that became a controversial program in any sense. It is literally trying to fill a gap that other companies and public services have completely failed to fill, leaving people in a very precarious position as it relates to access to information, which ultimately you and I agree is probably access to education, to jobs, to a bunch of other pieces, potentially to mates. Like it's a huge issue. Um, and, and it's one that, I, that we're passionate about as a company. Uh, there's things that we can kind of do. So one, one example I just saw recently, for example, uh, video calling, this kind of video calling takes a tremendous amount of bandwidth. You have to have a, not just an internet connection, but a very good internet connection to sustain this over time. Um, and I, my heart goes, you know, I have a, a kindergartner who's on Zoom right now, uh, I think. And can you, it, it's hard enough right now for him, a five-year-old, to be in a Zoom class. Can you imagine if the video's cutting out, it's choppy, he's not allowed to, con he can't contribute because when he unmutes, it's too late and they, they can't draw. It's awful. So something that we could do, for example, we've, we've seen demos internally where um, we can use the type of technology that powers deep fakes, which we're concerned about and doing a bunch of detection on, but instead says, hey, what if we recreate a little point cloud of your face and then transmit it very lightweight over the wire mm -hmm. and then reconstitute it on the other side so that you can actually have richer more lifelike video communication at lower bandwidths. Hmm. That's the kind of research that my team is doing that I think could have a huge impact on our ability to communicate richly under a range of conditions. And indeed, if you look at our responsible innovation principles, things like how does this behave in low bandwidth conditions, how does this affect those who are economically disadvantaged is one of the things that we look at. Um, so yeah, you, this is an area that's, that we're all passionate about at Facebook, uh, and I think probably as an entire industry. More from Boz after the break. And make sure to subscribe to First Contact wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. 
This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'd be curious to know, you talked about codec avatars earlier. Yeah. Not to geek out over these things, but I mean, for folks who are listening, you should like go look at this. It, it is really. Um, Fool your mother. I mean. We got to work on the insides of mouths. That's what gets you. As soon as someone starts opening their mouth, like, oh, okay, that's fake. Can you like but, describe uh, it? Like if we were in VR and like, it's like you, I would be seeing you, but it really looks like you, right? Like I, I yeah, mean. Codec avatars are extremely lifelike reproductions of somebody's face and the, the musculature that powers their face. And what it hopefully allows us to do is have really high fidelity interactions with lots of people at low bandwidth because we're not actually sending a video of your face. We're sending a small number of key points and machine learning metadata that allows us to reanimate the avatar of you on the other side. And like I said, there's the famous concept, the uncanny valley, where you want, if things are kind of lifelike, that's very bad. They either need to be clearly representational or pretty literal. Right. And codec avatars are clearly over the uncanny valley. They are on the other side. They are clearly good enough. The challenge we have with codec avatars is generating them. <laughs> right now, it's like a 30-minute of you saying funny phrases that get your mouth to animate in certain things and expressing certain emotions in like a camera capture rig to get to a codec avatar. That's obviously not something that's scalable. Can we get to it where you can just take 10 pictures with your phone right. uh, at home and we can do it that way. So we've got to do a lot to miniaturize that and and hopefully deploy it as something that people anyone could do over over Messenger. You could say, hey, like I'm, you know, I I didn't uh, I didn't have time to shave today. I'm I'm a mess. Let me just get my codec avatar in the game and animate it that way for this conversation. Or maybe I'm in a low bandwidth area, or maybe there's gonna be a lot of people on the call and it's gonna to start to break down. And then obviously as you move to virtual or augmented spaces, it's the only way to work. You know, how am I, how else am I gonna get uh, somebody to have a fireside conversation with me 
if I don't have some kind of representation that looks like them and causes me to feel like, wow, we're having a meaningful talk right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see the virtual space, you know, the workspace. It's kind of like it is really kind of hard to take someone seriously if they're kind of like a human pickle or something. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's, it, no. is, it is hard. It's so real. So I have, <laughs> I have a weekly meeting in virtual reality in, mm. in kind of one of our infinite, infinite office prototypes. I had it on Monday. And literally my team just like is outdoing themselves. Like one of my, one of my team members, Ficus, he comes in wearing a Santa shirt, Santa Claus like outfit uh, and like a, a Captain Cook hat. Another guy came with a red mohawk and a, pi- a parrot. We are having serious work conversations about serious <laughs> topics, but at some point you're just like, it is hard to focus when yeah. that keeps going on around right. you. Right. So no, we, we really want to keep driving on codec avatars. Well, and so, so let me ask you with codec avatars, they look so real. Like could someone, um, this is where I ask about like deep fakes, like to se- could someone take my identity and, and turn themselves into me with a codec avatar in the virtual space? Like not to get too black mirror on you, but you know, I think you guys have to anticipate these types of things. Like could I pretend to be boss, assume your identity with my codec avatar? Yeah, this is exactly the kind of threat vector I'm talking about when I say, yeah, we. this is obviously something we're worried about. We're thinking of ways to ensure that you have unique possession of it. We, this is actually an area that I think we, we have pretty strong ability to create guarantees uh, because the codec avatar will be somewhat computationally specific in terms of what it takes to create it. Like, I don't think other people will very readily in the near term be able to, to kind of create their own codec avatar version of you. Um, and so we'll be able to kind of store it and ensure it's just for your exclusive access. Uh, I don't think we'll allow the loaning of, of avatars anytime soon. Um, deepfakes are a little different, right? Because they start with a, a footage that's already in public. And and that's something that, you know, we've talked It's a little bit, that's more of Shrep and the AI team are focusing on that. How do you ensure the provenance of an image uh, is certainly one of the open areas of investigation, not just for Facebook, uh, but for the industry to kind of ensure that we have greater idea, sense of provenance of an image that it's real and hasn't been tampered with. I mean, God, the applications, and I don't want to get into it because we don't have too much time, but I mean, even thinking about like, you know, the future of death and mortality and remembrance and with Kodak avatars, I mean, there's so many interesting use cases I, I'm imagining you guys uh, could use, especially um, since you guys have so much data on our, our lives and, and so much uh, about us. I, I don't know. I just, it's, it certainly seems like there's a lot there. There's, there's, yeah, I think there's real potential there. You know, we're, one of the things that we do is we're working with Stanford on a project to, for example, do really rich uh, volumetric captures of historic sites. For those who, who you know, have been paying attention over the last 20 years, uh, in particular under some regimes like the Taliban, really amazing historic sites have been destroyed uh, systematically and intentionally. Uh, and that's a loss for historians. It's a loss for children. It's a loss for people who who would like to go see and experience that thing for themselves. So we are already trying to do those things. I recently saw a paper, not from Facebook, of somebody recreating what they thought the um, using machine learning to see what the Roman emperors actually looked like uh, as a you know using their sculptures and working backwards. Uh, and there's an appetite for those things. So the idea of having like that kind of potentially. Uh, biogra- autobiographical exposure to people who are both living and deceased is, is very interesting to me. I want to go back to Project Aria because we just kind of brushed over it. I mean, it's so it's really interesting. Um, can you give us really quick what exactly it is um, one more time? Yeah. And, and I, I just want to dig into it a teeny bit more. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a pair of conventional glasses, except that you'll notice it's got cameras facing outside. Uh, it's got cameras facing towards the, the wearer's eyes. It's got a GPS and it's connected to, you know, um, an app. The researcher who's wearing it has no access to the data and it provides them no value. <laughs> like they get nothing out of this except that we pay them to, to wear it around. What we get as a, as a once, it's, once it's been scrubbed and quarantined and cleaned of, of identifying data, 
then we get to use it to validate, you know, what sensors do we need to provide augmented reality? For example, why do you need outward facing sensors at all? For two reasons, one of which is to locate you in space. You know, us being able to put somebody in the sidewalk in front of you as a codec avatar, we have to know where the sidewalk is. Otherwise their feet are gonna be, they're gonna be floating or their feet are gonna be under the surface. It's not gonna look correct. And you're gonna take, take your reality, you know, you're not gonna believe it. You wanna play a Jenga game on the table. How do you do that if you don't know where the table is? And when I pull a piece out and I drop it, I need to know what the world looks like. So I need to be able to localize you in space and understand the topography. The second thing is it's potentially very useful. You know, if I'm walking up to a restaurant and I'm looking at the menu, oh, my friend took a picture of one of these menu items. Can we overlay that? Like, so it's potentially useful from a, a you know, giving you value of wearing these glasses perspective you once they have a display, which is obviously where we're plan planning to go. At the same time, they raise these tremendous questions. Hey, like who else is this video taking? Like, do I have access to the camera feed? Uh, can I post photos from it? Can the government uh, subpoena access to the camera feed? You know, what are tremendously deep questions. For us, we have a goal of understanding, hey, we want to cut, <laughs> one thing that's really nice is we want to capture as little data as possible. The reason is data capture is very expensive. <laughs> data capture in augmented reality glasses, they're tiny. They're going to fit in your face. We don't have that much battery. We don't have that much compute. We have to dissipate thermal energy without burning you. So we don't have that much thermal space. So we would like to capture as absolutely little data as possible to deliver great experiences to you. So with these research uh, glasses, we're trying to figure out, hey, how much data do we need to deliver these experiences? Uh, what is different about egocentric data? You know, you can't, we can't just use data from, for example, cars that have been driving around forever, street view, because it turns out when you're on the sidewalk, you're walking under trees and there's different lighting conditions. It's not the same. So we have to, how does it perform in different weather conditions? How does it perform with a human wearing it who constantly taking it on, taking it off, doing different things with it, fussing with it? How often is it getting smudged? How often is it like the, the video quality compromised? Can we even detect that? It's a huge amount of questions that we need to answer, but you know, and we want to answer them now, years before the, the yeah. technology is actually in a consumer device. So for us, we've got technological questions. That's one goal. But we've also got social questions and kind of, frankly, societal questions uh, about the the use and benefit of these technologies versus the trade offs. Yeah, I saw one person was saying, um, you know, there are proactive steps that we should be taking. Um, declaring biometric data as health data, legislating more consumer protections, making privacy choices simpler and better informed. What do you think? I don't know the specifics that you're referring to. I don't know enough about what it means for something to be health data or not. Uh, I do think that fundamentally, uh, as Facebook has been saying for a while, we'd like to have a unified privacy, uh, you know, legal framework that we can work within. Uh, you know, Facebook has been really open about this. Like you want legislation, you want legislation written by people who understand technology enough for this legislation to make sense, which isn't always a guarantee. And so we are like very in favor of kind of a, a legislation that makes clear how to handle things like uh, face recognition, uh, which you see as a patchwork right now. It's coming up, you know, Illinois and Portland. Patchworks are hard. That's like really hard to deploy scaled technological solutions to. It's hard to invest all of our energy in getting it right when there's like four or five different jurisdictions. And that's just in the United States, let alone in Europe. And so I think for us, like, yeah, the more clarity we have on like, hey, here's the data framework, here's the privacy framework, here's what's allowed, the happier I'm going to be because I can put 100% of my engineering resources on executing on that. I literally like don't know the specifics except to say that I want to have a more unified framework. We do have teams who are spending a lot more time than I am on on trying to like make sure that there's some progress there. You have something called personal API. I, I read something you wrote about uh, yeah. personal <laughs> API and learning when to say no. 
Can you t- talk to us about your, your personal API? And then, and then I want to talk about the last time you said no. Yeah. My, so personal API is just about, uh, we like, we exist in these egocentric bubbles where our worlds are so clear to us and we sometimes don't understand why other people, why it's not clear to other people who are around us. And like, why should it be clear? You have to tell them like, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. You know, for, for me, it's like, hey, uh, I, I used to have these really strong visions of myself in one light. And it was hard for me when people would, even if they were complimenting me, they would compliment me in a way that didn't align with my internal vision. That was a, that was a miss. I find like talking openly about, hey, you know, I like to work on technology that allows people to connect. It turns out I like to work on that technology across a huge range. It doesn't, I, you know, I can do it in broadcast, multicast, one-on-one, virtual reality. I like building things that then two other people can find some connection on that. Uh, it's very satisfying to me. And it's what I've dedicated myself to doing. And I enjoy that. And the more people understand that's where I'm coming from, the easier it is to work with me, the easier it is to understand me. Uh, and I think Facebook, you know, we could do a better job as a company. Hey, like we're trying to connect people. And there's, we got to do a better job of getting rid of the bad stuff, but there's a lot of stuff that we really value and we got to figure out how to write the, the, the distribution between those things. So I, I write a lot about these things for the benefit. Honestly, these are almost always hard learned lessons for me. What ends up happening is I screw up something up for 10 years and then I finally have an epiphany or somebody coaches me, God bless, and says, mm-hmm. hey, you're screwing this up. And then I'm like, oh, right. And then I try to write it so that hopefully somebody else gets that epiphany a little sooner than I did. Um, you know, that's definitely been the story of my career is, is making mistakes often out in public, often in embarrassing ways, learning from those and trying to help other people with them. And so actually I wrote two notes. I wrote one called say yes and I wrote one called say no. And it's intentional. I have these, I, I love working at these like balances. A lot of times people are too instinctive to say no because I'm busy. They're not saying no because it's a bad idea. They're just saying no, I'm not ready to hear a thing right now. And they need to say yes. However, at the same time, just as often people want to say yes to everybody because it feels good to say yes. But then at some point you say yes to so many things, you start letting people down because you can't do all the things. And so sometimes the most, the best way to show respect to somebody is say, hey, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm not going to do it. Or, I'm, or just not, I'm not interested in it. You know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying I'm not interested in it. <laughs> at the risk of getting myself in trouble with some of your peers, I say, I say no to interviews that I want to do, interviews that I would love to do. Uh, people who want to get me on the podcast, people who want to get me. And I just say, no, you know, I, I, I can't commit to it because I take this stuff seriously. Uh, and I want to put my time and, and make sure that every one of these I do is, is quality. You'll, you'll get to tell me how I did on that. Um, and so I, I do say no to other people, but I said yes to you. So it's not <laughs> all bad news. Um, one of the things I've always thought was interesting, I mean, when you talk about mistakes, you know, you, you talk about learning from your mistakes. And I know we hear a lot of executives who talk about mistakes and they've learned and we hear the company line over and over again. But but I think the thing that people crave more than anything is just humans, right? And, and people just to be human. Um, yeah. And, and I think that goes for a lot. So like maybe you could just be human with us for a moment. What do you think is like the, the biggest mistake you've made? Oh, it's it's easy. It's, it's that stupid memo the ugly memo that i wrote years back um you know i wrote a thing it was it was pursuant to a bunch of internal conversations which have since been lost to time it was relevant to them it made sense in the context of what they were uh but i wrote it glibly i wrote it i I think i wrote it like five minutes i took i didn't edit nobody reviewed it i put it up there people hated it it had a discussion that i thought was valuable it was like it's like that's you know i was like i was like cool like (laughs) kick that discussion off like let me move on 
you know, and, and it really is a part of an instance. I've actually since gone back and written what I had intended to write the first time. The second one I wrote was like thoughtful. It was really nuanced. It had all the points. And of course, no one cared about that one because that was not this like glib kind of shoot from the hip thing. I think sometimes people uh, confuse, uh, you know, being like uh, uh, controversial as like authenticity. That's not authenticity. My authentic self is incredibly nuanced. You know, I have layers upon layers of feelings about things and sometimes they conflict and I want to work through them and, and all the meaningfulness. Um, and so I actually, when, when that leaked and it was really, you know, uh, embarrassing for me, it was embarrassing for the company. And I, I still to this day, I, you know, I think back on how, on how foolish it was to have written it in the first place the way that I did. Um, I wrote to the company, I said, hey, the solution to this isn't for me to write less. It's for me to write more is to not give the glib hot take one liner that's like, you know, punchy and gets a reaction. It's to write the thoughtful nuanced thing. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I you know, <laughs> you live and learn. It's, it's, a, it's an embarrassment to me still. And I think it will be uh, to the end of time, but it can also be a valuable lesson to me and to others. And I've tried to turn that into something positive. Um, but yeah, no, I, you know, I do tend to wear my mistakes on my sleeve. I do think we live, to your point, Laurie, in an age of authenticity, an age where when we see something that's perfect, we almost want to tear it down more. When we see imperfections, it's more relatable, it's more understandable, it's more real, and we trust that a little bit more. And well, at least I'm hoping that's the case because that's uh, I'm a case study of it. So what do you, you talk about the how that's not the authentic you, but the authentic you is thinking about some of these things in a much more nuanced way. Um, what are you thinking about now that, that you would say is uh, the more appropriate uh, boss memo now, right? Um, what, what, is, what is the thing you're stewing on now that, that you just think is super important um, and, and needs attention and, and needs debate and needs discussion? Yeah, for us, you know, I think there's two pieces. One of, you know, from a the body of work that the, the world is exposed to right now that I've put out, I think it's just a question about uh, the nature of democracies in general. You know, I think a lot of times these things are couched in terms of free speech, and sometimes we're the ones who, who use that language. For me, it's about democracy. It's, it's like, hey, you know, um, who's allowed to have an opinion? Are people allowed to be wrong? Uh, should we return to an era of central gatekeepers? Uh, who watches the watchers? Uh, you know, it's, it's a tremendous challenge. Uh, and, and it's a, it's an area that I see a lot of nuance myself and I don't see as much nuance, um, in the public sphere in the conversation around it. It's, it's, it's partisan all the way to the bottom. And listen, I, I'm partisan in a way, you know, I have politics. They're not hard to discover for those who look, but like, uh, I do also believe in democracy and I'm, I'm torn on some of these issues that, that sometimes my liberal brethren, find so cut and dry, I'm a little more anxious about eventually taking that power and putting it in the hands of the other side when the democracy swings the other way. Um, so that's one set of, of things where I, I, I wish we had a little more nuance collectively in the conversation. I'm not the only one there. Um, and this probably isn't the time for it. <laughs> I'm saying this to you because you asked the question, but I don't think right now, National Voter Registration Day, everybody go out and register to vote. I realize that this won't be done today. So Whatever time, whatever time mm -hmm. it is, vote in the next election you can. Um, but like, I, I realize it's not the time right now for that conversation, and I'm not pushing it, but it is in my head, and it's something that, that I, I think about. Um, day to day, though, more operably for me is, is thinking about how to get this technology out to people, you know, um, uh, making it more accessible, making it more universal, uh, making it more user friendly, 
making it so it doesn't feel weird to you to be in a conversation with people, making it so that you do feel like your virtual self is a representation of your real self and you're comfortable with that. Um, they're, like I said before, this is my favorite part of working on products. It does feel like the beginning of newsfeed or the beginning of, of the ads work that I did or the beginning of messenger or the beginning of groups. It feels that way. It feels like the potential is here. I can see it. I can feel it. I experience it every day. How do I get it to everyone? Everyone should have this power. Everyone should have this opportunity. Um, and so that's where I am day to day. So that tell me, I mean, you you have you've been in the war room at Facebook um, for since 2006 through the highs, the lows, the criticism, the the moments, you know, all of it. And we know there's been, been tons of it. Um, why do you do what you do? It really, for me, comes down to uh, a, a joy at these small experiences that were not possible before that are possible now. Uh, two people connecting. And I don't judge other people's motivations. For some people, they want to empower uh, civilizations and revolutions. And some people want to just tell their mom and have their mom be using something. And some people want to be famous and they want to be in the news. I don't know why. Uh, I, those, none of those things really motivate me very much. The only thing that I really find every day I get up is like, hey, there's some people who tomorrow will do a thing that was not possible before I did the work that I do. And that is immensely satisfying for me. I guess I'm a little bit, uh, <laughs> I'm a little bit thought about legacy, leaving something that outlasts me, having done something that leaves some kind of impact on the world. The only impact in the world that matters is the impact you have on the people of the world uh, and making their lives a little bit better. Uh, and I get a chance to do that every day and it's pretty dang fun. I think you'll be at Facebook for, for life. Are you a Facebook lifer? <laughs> Well, if Mark's asking, no, yeah, no, I, I, um, I, I'm really happy at Facebook. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I certainly can't predict more than a few years out in my life. Yeah. Um, but so far, at every turn, uh, I found more new and exciting work that kept me deeply engaged. So, you know, I really am uh, as excited uh, today as I was uh, that first day, January 9th, two thousand six. For more from Dot Dot Dot, sign up for our newsletter at dot 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 media dot com backslash newsletter. We're launching in October with an exciting guest and topic. A prominent Silicon Valley founder who believes the toxicity found on the biggest platforms could be avoided simply by taking a stance from the get-go. He says that tech shouldn't be neutral, it should be opinionated. It's a fascinating take. And follow along on our social media. I'm at Lori Siegel on Twitter and Instagram, and the show is at First Contact Podcast on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at First Contact Pod. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We really appreciate it. First Contact is a production of Dot 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 Media, executive produced by Lori Siegel and Derek Dodge. This episode was produced and edited by Sabine Jansen and Jack Regan. The original theme music is by Xander Singh. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. 
David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.